You've just entered the Disaster Tough podcast, the place for emergency managers, first responders, and humanitarians who want to get the job done. Stories, lessons, and tips are provided by field experts. I'm your host, John Scardina, owner of Doberman Emergency Management and former federal emergency response official who's responded to some of the most extreme disasters. Disaster Tough is our mantra. It combines experience, training, and analytics in order to be successful at any stage within the disaster life cycle. It means being a professional in emergency and disaster services. Doberman Emergency Management lives by this. If your organization needs to fill a gap, please contact us. We can help. Contact info is in the show notes. We also support other products and organizations that will increase your ability. For example, if you fight wildfires, hurricanes, a pandemic, any disaster in the field, at a hospital or command center, listen up. You're missing out if you do not use L3 Harris for your radio comms. They are secure, portable, mobile, and scalable, which is great news for us in the field. A truly disaster-tough radio system. Check out the XL family of radios by clicking on the show notes or simply go to L3Harris.com. When you think of situational awareness, you need to think of Futurity IT. They are disaster tough because they saw a gap and figure out how to close it by creating the Orion and Athena applications. Situational awareness is all about speed, coordination, and accuracy of information. Futurity IT's Orion app collects and provides preliminary damage assessments and integrates all incident action plan documents with WebEOC. The Athena app allows for planning, contact tracing, and customizable group coordination in every single phase of the disaster lifecycle. The best part? Futurity IT made both applications extremely intuitive. It's so easy to use. Click on the show notes today to schedule a free demo. your host, John Scardina. I am so excited for this episode. I've been waiting for it for a long time. Doug and I have been coordinating uh, behind the scenes about what we're going to be talking about today. And he has so much experience. Obviously, if you saw the show title, you know that he's with the FDNY and he's been working in New York City for a really long time. Again, he's, a, he's an expert in that field. He can talk about all, so many different areas. Doug, welcome to the show. John, thank you so much. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. So just to catch up our listeners, so I gave that really brief introduction. Uh, what's kind of your background? What are you doing now? And um, can you just kind of walk us through your career path? Sure, absolutely. So my name is Doug Bainton. I'm a New York City firefighter. I've been on the job almost 17 years. I got on 2004. And I'm currently detailed over to New York City Emergency Management as a citywide interagency coordinator out of the Response Bureau. Okay, so... You're a guy I like a lot because we always talk about um, like the next steps in your career. We give a lot of career advice on here. We try to uh, show emergency managers that they need like response experience. They need the, you know that strategic experience. And you're a prime example of somebody who said, "Hey, hey, here's a tactical level response firefighting. Um, there's a strategic level with the New York City Office of Emergency Management." And so, what are some of those pivotal moments in your career? that has helped you, you know, in, to, to increase um, your uh, capacity, I guess you could say? Well, I, I think things, when you're talking about your career, I think one of the biggest things is to keep your head on a swivel, right? Always, always be open for opportunity and try to figure out when there's a door of opportunity, you want to go in and check out what's inside, right? In the fire service, we have a saying, you never pass the door. 
And I try to tell people it's very similar in your career. When you have an opportunity to, to see a new experience or try a new project or something, take a look because you never know what you're going to find. So in my career, uh, I got on in 2004, like I said, and in 2005, Hurricane Katrina hit. Right? And word went out in the fire department that they were looking for firefighters to be available to deploy to go down there and help out because the New Orleans Fire Department was overwhelmed. Well, I didn't have enough time on the job at that point to take that role. Mm. So a little bit later on that day, uh, a call came out for volunteers to go down and uh, be willing to donate their vacation time to go help out with a team of firefighters who were going to work with the Red Cross. Cool. And I'm that type of person who, you know, we always see disasters. And I've always felt like, man, I, I want to go there. I want to do something. I feel helpless just watching this. Mm. And all of a sudden, mean. I had an opportunity to say yes and go. So I did. I made a phone call, spoke to the gentleman who I didn't know at the time. He was the president of the team. And he said he took my info and he said, I'll call you back. So I went back to doing my work, cleaning tools, going on calls, all that kind of thing. And I got a phone call later on from the same gentleman who said, okay, you're actually on disaster leave as of right now. You're going to go home. You're going to pack a bag and you're going to meet us and the rest of the team at Red Cross headquarters tomorrow morning at seven. And you're going to go to New Orleans for three weeks. That's Just awesome. Like that. You know, and I was like, well, all right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Sure. Yeah, well, there was like, so, no, yeah, there was uh, no like you know, prep time, right? It was just like, you're in. Yeah, no. no. I mean, he called me later on. I was like, here's some things to pack. And, mm. you know, cause he, you know, he knew I was just like, uh, you know, <laughs> I have no idea what I just did. So, uh, you know, it was really, uh, that was, that was what started it all for me. Mm. That was the very first non firefighting opportunity I had in the FDNY. That's you know, cool. Fast forward. I've been to multiple notable disasters with that team, mm. uh, including California wildfires, in 2007, you know, we posted up on Palomar Mountain for three weeks, and we uh, we built a, a field support uh, area for task forces, mm. um, fighting the witch and Pomacha fires. You know, which were were a pretty big deal. Yeah. And for us, you know, New York City firefighters, we don't see wildland fires, right? Mm. You know, we we have wildfires, but they're fields or whatever. This is the first time I saw an entire California mountain eaten by flames in yeah. minutes, and we were just staring at it what is going on? And then a fire tornado broke out and we were like, what? You know, <laughs> and it was just mind blowing. Yeah. And this is again, an example of, Hey, you can go deploy for three weeks and go do this. And, and if I hadn't done that, I wouldn't have I've had a better understanding of what wildland firefighters go through, you know, and, and how different it is from urban firefighters, you know, and hurricane responses. I mean, Katrina wildfires. And then I went to, um, Oklahoma, more Oklahoma, 2013, when a major tornado outbreak, you know, you have five mm -hmm. and it destroyed the town. I'd never seen anything like it. You know, entire town just completely leveled. Folks lost everything, you know, and, and just getting in the field and talking to those people and trying to help them any way you could. Very humbling experience. It really takes you out of your head and go, wow, I've, I've got it pretty good, you know, and, and things like that. And, uh, deploying to USVI in 2017 for a few weeks and right after Irma, we got hit with Maria while we were down there and, uh, you know, just trying to build the initial humanitarian response to those islands during that time was just life changing, you know? So for me in, in, in my career, I've had opportunities for projects and things come up and I always take a look 
I always ask, okay, what is that all about? I don't off, you know, I don't like to write things off as if, no, nah, I'm not interested in that. Because yeah. if I would have done that, I wouldn't be where I'm at today. You know, like I've had a lot of cool experiences in my career because I'm willing to take those opportunities. You know, I love the, I love the dance that, um, we have to play in emergency services. Yeah. I mean, you highlighted it just so well. Uh, I remember talking to survivors after the 2011 tsunami in Japan and um, very humbling experience. I think that's, I think that's the right call. And to, sure. to talk to somebody who's just lost everything and it's happened virtually every disaster I've been at where I was able, I've been able to talk with survivors despite most of my disasters now being strategic level. Um, but it's like really important for me to get out there and see like, okay, like what is it like on the ground level? But um, yeah, survivors are still usually very kind. I mean, their whole world has just been racked and yet they, they look at you as a friend and, uh, and uh, uh, how can I help you? Yeah. Yeah. It's insane. And you're coming from out of town. They're like, what can I do for you? And, and you're just like, what? No, I'm here for you. Yeah. yeah. And I didn't really, uh, even with what Katrina was crazy, it was the craziest thing I'd ever seen. You know, we got there a couple of days after landfall and I, it was tractor trailers and trees and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, coffins on the ground and just absolute madness. And I had never seen anything like that, but we didn't really interact with, uh, people as much because a lot of, most of the people were evacuated at that point. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, the, the wildfires, we didn't deal with any of the, the local residents really. It was, it was really supporting the firefighters, but Oklahoma was the first time I really had that impact that you're talking about with the, you know, survivors. And we're, we're driving down these streets and more and every house is just a pile of wood and people are just trying to find a picture or maybe a, a memento or something. And we're driving, we have a truck full of supplies that the Red Cross had and tarps and some water, et cetera. And we're walking down the street and we see somebody, we're wearing FDNY, our, our disaster assistance response team shirts. And they're like, y'all came from New York City to help us? And we're like, yes, sir. You know, is there anything we can do for you? And the gentleman looks at me and he looks at his wife and his kids. He says, hey, can I talk to you on the other side of the truck? And we're like, sure, sure. Come on over. And we get to the other side of the truck. And he says, man, I just need a hug. And, and, I, and I give him a hug and he starts crying like bawling. Now I start crying. Now all my guys, we're all crying. Like I, we just, it was, in, it was intense. It was an intense moment. And, you know, he just wanted to stay strong for his family. He didn't want them to see him that way, but he needed to get that out. And when he did, we said, sir, you know, can we get you some water, some tarps to cover your stuff? Or here's what we've got in the truck. He said, no, sir, you just gave me everything I need to get through this. And man, that was like, that was like a punch in the chest. You know, I'd never experienced that before, you know, and you walk two minutes down the block and you see another family, these, these older couple in their eighties and they're trying to put stuff on the street, trying to collect the damage. Half their house was gone. And we said, sir, ma'am, is there anything we can do for you? And I said, no, no, we're all set. You know, thanks for coming out. I said, all right. You know, and, and they said, and the gentleman starts telling us a story and he says, you know, when the storm was coming, we didn't think it was going to be that bad. He goes, we didn't think it was going to be an EF5. He goes, but then we realized it was. We went across the street. Now, this gentleman was on a walker, and his wife, they're 82 years old, going across the street to try and get in a shelter. Can't get in. They go back to their house. They climb in the tub. He lays on top of her, and they just tell each other they love each other. Through this thing, the storm rips the back of their house off. 
and they survive. And they come out, and they're telling us this story, and we're just blown away. And Blown the, away? The, and the woman said, oh, yeah, right? <laughs> and the woman says, he's my hero. Yeah. You know, and I said, sir, you know, can we take your picture? Like, you're, you're everything that embodies, you know, what we love about this. You know, mm. we're trying to help you, and you're just, you just did the right thing for your wife, and that's and that's just your life. And we were like, man, the humility and, and just. And he said, "You could take my photo, but I got to get my hat, and I don't want my walker in the photo." <laughs> and he stood there, tall and proud, with his wife, and they smiled as he should. And, yeah. And half their house was gone, you know. And they're in their eighties, and I was like, "Man, I want to be half that man when I get that age," you know. That's real courage too. Yeah. You know. And I take, I've taken every disaster home with me and just, you know, almost to a fall where I look at my stuff, like I have too much stuff because I've just spent three to five weeks in an absolute chaotic environment where people lost everything. Yeah. So it's, it's a very humbling experience to do that, you know, and interact with the people. Yeah, you're talking about real life here. I mean, uh, blown away though, that was kind of like, um, yeah. yeah the, <laughs> it's tough because one, we just started doing these YouTube videos, and so I started get, like I almost got emotional there, and I had to pull back real quick, and I can't show that on screen. So, um, but again, that shows that 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 dance we have to play because you're you're talking about these really powerful, humbling experiences, but then you also said something that really caught my ear. You said it, but I've had these really cool experiences in my career, and that's the dance we always have to play. We don't want disasters to impact people, and when it does, we re- we feel really bad for them, but we got into this field for a reason. Like I like to say, I want to punch a hurricane in the face. Like I want to figure out every single way that I can like attack that disaster and help people and get people back to, uh, to that norm, that, that normal or that even that new normal. And that's why like disaster tough is kind of my thing. Like I don't like resiliency. I, I'm probably gonna get a lot of flack for that, but resiliency is all about bouncing back. Right. It's about like, Oh, you fell down and get back up. Well, I don't want to have to fall down. Like, Yes, things happen and, and, and you want to have that peace. But I think we need to focus a lot more on mitigation. We need to focus a lot more of like stopping this stuff. And you know, to your credit and to New York Fire and firefighters in general, firefighters has, have done a phenomenal job uh, over the last 50 years of changing how the general public uh, deals with fire and how often that they have uh, a fire response. You know, you look at... Um, like between building codes and teaching people don't smoke in your freaking bed and um, you know, all these other things that cause fires, you know, firefighters are are becoming much more medical in, in in just what they have to do. And I'm sure you can talk more about that. Uh, But that's, that's all about, um, you know, having cool experiences, but at the same time being humbled when you meet the survivors uh, or um, understanding the victims. I mentioned this one other time on the podcast about maybe six months ago. I don't know how many people I've helped, um, but I feel responsible for all the people who've died in the disasters I've gone to, and I've kept that count. And um, it, it kind of fuels me to like make sure that number never grows. And um, when that does grow, it's like, okay, w- what happened? And like I said, you, you, there is a resiliency piece, but we need to become much more, much more tough and how we, I'm on board with the resiliency idea. You know, I, I get it. It's a, it's a bit of a catch catch word. It's a buzzword. It is. Right? Yeah. We all it's love like, saying uh, it. Yeah. I say it all the like time. Robust, about, yeah. robust, 
robust is, a, in my opinion, a highly overused word. Yeah. You know, everything's robust. Um, and that's great. Uh, yeah. You sound like, you know, you sound like you're talking a good game. But resiliency to me, you know, you, I, I want the least amount of need for resiliency. Yes. You know, I want to be prepared enough and knowledgeable enough when the incident happens to mitigate it such that a high level of resiliency is not required. Yes, that's that's the goal. You want to be resilient if you have to be resilient, and that comes right. with great planning and great. Yeah, I don't execution. want to count on it. Yeah, I, I don't <laughs> want that to be the main thing. Yeah, I think I, I don't want to expect this, expect the, expect a storm, and say, okay, the government's going to come save me, and then I'll become resilient. Yeah, you know, that's just not how I think it should work. Well, I mean, the problem is, and you and I have talked about this offline, so it's like a good time to talk about this now. Is you know, you get some people who get out there who have only looked at uh, disasters on paper and um, they don't really know what it's like. And so they're like, oh yeah, a tornado went through there and this this many homes and this many people and uh, mm-hmm. returning to normal means dumping this many dollars. You know, what I would call like the armchair emergency manager. And um, sure. they they don't really understand. They think every every incident, you're going to have a major impact and it'll be a 10-year recovery. Most large-scale disasters, catastrophic disasters are 10 years. Right. So, um, But they've never smelled flooding. Say that again? They've never smelled flooding. Yes. That's... Yes. Right? And I, I've been to major floods in USVI, uh, Arkansas, Oklahoma, and California, and they all smell the same. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, yeah, there's a very distinct so odor to flooding. It it is. And when not I tell fun. people that, they're like, "What do you talk about?" I'm like, "You wouldn't know unless you were in that environment." Yeah. How do you taste? How do you explain salt if you've never tasted it before? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, uh-huh. and and that's and that's to your point about you know you're you're reading about this on a piece of paper or in a book, and you've never laid eyes on it or touched it or tried to really make an impact physically one-on-one with the people that are directly impacted, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's an unfortunate side of, you know, I have a lot of respect for folks who come right into emergency management without any first response or field experience because, you know, they have to, they have a different kind of balance than, Mm -hmm. than I did coming from a, from a first response field experience. Now, obviously coming up as a first responder, you know, I have, I, you have to be able to remove that hat. Yes. You know, and, and put on an emergency management. That's a very different world. And I think, you know, like you got, you and Todd DeVoe were talking about this a little bit. Uh, there's a crossover there. And, you know, purists on all sides will, will be like, I can do that, you know. Wow. And I think that's that's one of the funniest arguments I see go on. It's like, you know, I think you mentioned uh, police departments who advertise, take some ICS classes, you can be an emergency manager. <laughs> you know, or so classes are not what makes you the emergency manager. Yeah, you know awesome. what I mean? That's not how it works. Well, Any more than probie, class, probie school makes you a firefighter, you know? Well, that old school tr- way of thinking, especially before 9-11, of... Right. When I retire from my tactical job, my first responder job, I go and get a, a cushion job. And so I have basically two retirements. And um, if I did fire, like I said, you know, I, on Todd DeVoe, in fact, if uh, people are listening, Todd DeVoe, uh, EM Weekly, you should tune into his podcast. I'm a big fan of his, uh, but he's on the show and we were talking about that. And yeah, if you're a fire, you, you, you focus on evacuations, mustering locations, um, you know, that route. If you do police, it's all about active shooters active assailants, um, you know, security. And so um, you stick to what you know. 
And um, the, the problem with that is both of those things are incredibly important. And you need to, to add those pieces. You need to add the medical piece. You need to add the coordination piece, which is um, sometimes outside the realm of fire and police is because they're so used to being like the top dog when they show up to a scene that they don't really understand that coordination. But, but the they're same, silos. Yeah, exactly. But the same you time, know, emergency and as emergency managers, managers, our job is to try and take those silos, merge them as best we can, get that kind of ten to thirty thousand foot view, yes, and, and see if there's and try to anticipate what we might need and line it up and yeah. support those agencies who are doing that tactical job as best as we can. Yes, exactly. And I say I say this the exact same thing to emergency managers, uh, which I think you're kind of getting to is. If you go direct directly into emergency management without any response experience, and I like to include volunteer response experience, just getting out there and seeing what it's like, but um, without having that background, you are not allowed to hang your hat with the fire or the police. You know, and, and there's a little bit of a gray area now because in the last ten years or so, because FEMA has been focusing on uh, protection. It's one of their five mission areas. And right. first, you know, emergency managers have been taking that. And as emergency management that has become, <laughs> yes, exactly. And as emergency management is much more public. I feel like 2020, like Todd said this, even on our show, it's so much easier to explain to people now what emergency manager is before it was like, are you like, what are you? And, sure. um, like, like, but because of that, because it's more public, people all, people look at us as the first responder as well. So if I'm a, a, an emergency manager that's hired for a corporation, then there is a security aspect to that. And when there's a security incident, the emergency manager is called and expected to do something. One, it's part of their job. Uh, but two, that's the persona of senior leadership. And so what do you do if you don't? And right. my, my big thing is, uh, like I made this quip about joining the, the police academy. What I meant by that was, you're not allowed to hang your hat until you have training and experience. And if you're expected to to step in one of those other realms, then you need to your 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 education alone does not provide that. Your title alone does not provide that. Right? No, I mean, you know, just reading a book, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I, as a guy who has about a thousand books behind him, um, <laughs> it's yeah. it's very theoretical, you know, <laughs> if you haven't actually done it. And, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of first responders getting into the emergency management field, but only if they're willing to adopt the right mindset, right? It's, it's yeah. not, okay, I'm a, I'm a firefighter. I was a fire chief for 30 years. Of course I can manage an emergency. Mm. You know, that's just not how it works. Well, you know, because you're still being very, you're, you're going to be very tactical. And we see it time and time again. It's those first responders who have that experience and then, get involved in emergency management and are willing to look at this objectively and say, Hey, this is a whole other side of this realm that I live in yeah. that I've never seen before. And I can meld that. And when you figure out how to meld it, you know, one of the benefits I think as a first responder that I might have that someone who uh, is, has it's of equivalent experience in emergency management might say, I don't have to be in the field to be able to figure out what's going on in the field. Mm, I like that. You know what I mean? I, it's not, it's not imaginary to me because I've actually done it. I can picture it and I can, I can almost feel the consequences, you know, and that's smell not the to say that if, if you haven't physically done it, you're not going to be able to do your job. I know some really great emergency managers who do just that and they've never touched 
you know, a, a survivor and handed them a bottle of water. But I think it's a lot easier when you have actually had that experience. But you don't have to be a first responder to do that. You know, all of my disaster response experience, Katrina, USBI, all those things, the disaster response team I'm a member of is all volunteer. Yeah. You know? So that was with the Red Cross. We partnered with the Red Cross and they deployed us. So, you know what I mean? There's a lot of avenues to do that. But if I never did that, I would be riding the backstep of the fire truck and that would be the world I knew. There'd be no way I could call myself an emergency manager like that. Yeah. You know? but I'd have a lot more now. training and experience that I'd have to gain. Yeah. And, and as emergency managers who want to get that kind of field or what we call that tactical experience, you know, we use a lot of words and, and I think there's a lot of subjectivity in the things we talk about and we're just not willing to admit it. You know, like <laughs> there are tactics in emergency management when, when the executive, you know, strategy level says what they say and your job is to execute that tactic. Yes. Tactical does not mean molly gear and guns and fire hoses. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's, that's one type of tactic tactics. You know what I mean? You, so, I need to connect you with Tim Britt from the National Strike Team. Um, okay. He was saying that on the show as well. Um, he says you, you can make you can make any you can make the greatest strategic plan you want, but uh, every disaster fails at the tactics. Absolutely. Yes. And you know, and, and that's where you know, if you don't have the right communications, and if you don't have strategy level folks who are willing to listen mm-hmm. and say, and you know, take and trust your folks and say, hey, here's this isn't going to work right, and here's why, but we can do this. Yeah, you have to be. You know, we all I ever ask of my senior leadership is trust that I'm going to do the right thing, and provide top cover when necessary. <laughs> that's a good. Yeah, you know that's a good I mean? way to like, look I'm at it. I'm not going to break laws, but yeah. if you want the job done, you know, I'm like the people need water. There's water there. We're supposed to fill out a form. Those people haven't had water in two days. I'm going to give them the water. Mm. Yeah. You know what I mean? In my mentality, that's the end of the story. I'll, we have to remember why we're here. You know, what, what are we here for? Yes. You know, we have to, you have to let go of your ego. It's not about you. You know what I mean? None of this is about us. Not one bit of it. You know, it's not why we're here. And if it is, then you're in the wrong arena. But- I was at a disaster. We had, I count, I have this cool picture. I'll send it to you after this. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe I'll put it on the, the Instagram page, disaster tough. But I counted 17 buckets that we had collecting water through the ceiling in a hurricane. We were all on our computers, very dangerous. We were all on our computers working, and there were 17 buckets collecting water in this facility that we're at. And um, I, you know, I took that quick picture. I'm really glad I did because it showed that, you know, what there's probably 150 people in that room, all their heads down, just working and and talking to each other, and nobody cared. Like if something happened to us, okay, we'd figure that out, but we weren't there for us. No. Um, no, you, you have a job to do. Yeah, those are great call-outs. I'm going to have to like find all these little quotes that you're making and make uh, like a thousand posts just for all these well, quotes. You know, it's uh, it's interesting because I've been to quite a few uh, disasters that the that are that are called hardships. You know, where there's there's no power, there's no facilities, no running water. You know, you just got to kind of you're roughing it, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, obviously USVI was the biggest one. We got to St. Thomas a couple of days after Irma hit. And, and those islands were decimated by Irma, absolutely destroyed. Yeah. No power, no infrastructure, no garbage pickup, hospital shutdown, no hotels, no stores open, nothing. Yeah. Right? We, had, we had granola bars, our packs with our clothes, 
no cell service, no internet, no comms whatsoever between the three islands. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And now we're going to build a humanitarian response for three islands and we're the headquarters. Right. That's the so dream. Again, we're, That's we're a dream job. We're up in this job. gym at Antilles school up on a mountain in St. Thomas. And, uh, we're in this gym and it's hot. And, you know, one of these younger Red Cross volunteers, you know, this is kind of along the lines of what you dealt with says, Hey, uh, is there any way, you know, you, you firefighters here, you, could you get the air conditioning on? Mm. And my buddy, the, the other member of my team, he had to kind of just step away. Yeah. You know, <laughs> cause a, he was just, he was gonna, he was about to lose it. You yeah. Know that's, I a, that's a, I want a rage r- moment. Yeah. And I'm looking around and I'm like, we're in this gymnasium that got, all beat up. There's water leaking from the ceiling. We're, we're sleeping on, on cots in, in, uh, in this gym. There's, you know, it's really hot Mm -hmm. and we have no idea. We can't communicate with the mainland whatsoever. We can't communicate with the other islands. We have no idea what's going on. We don't even know how to get to the other islands. Yeah. And what you want is air conditioning. (laughs) You traveled to an Island in the Caribbean that got hit by a cat five in a known hardship. You were told there was no power, <laughs> yeah. but you still expect air conditioning, you know? So when you, when I, when I had to, I've, I've learned a lot about myself dealing with those kind of things because I know what hardship means. And I'm like, let's go. I got my, <laughs> I got my sleeping bag. I got my bug spray, you know, got a bottle of water. We're good. You know, let's yeah. go find out who's impacted and, and see what we can do. You know, and then these people, come, you know, you get some people come in and they, they're just not, they don't know what to, what to do. And so instead of getting mad, I made it into a teaching moment, you know, just explain, here's what's going on. Here's where we're at. Here's why you're not going to have air conditioning the entire time you're here. Here are some of the things you're bound to see. If you can't handle that, I need to know now because we need to get you on a plane out of here. Yeah. And because that's, that's a good conversation. We're basically conversation on Survivor right now. Not, not a... I like the way you say it, like it's a teaching moment. Like, for example, that staffer um, saying like, hey, like, I understand that you really want to help people. Um, but the way you tick, there's different areas of which you can help. Not everybody is very, not everybody is designed, I'll, hop, I'll say that way, to, to do response. It's emotional. It's exhausting. It pushes you to your absolute limit and you realize that that wasn't your limit and you keep on pushing. A lot of people, uh, that's just not the way they tick. And it's really okay actually to say that. It's not, it's not to your discredit or your, your inability or the fact that you're, you're somehow weaker. No, like some people are made for response and some people are made for recovery or planning. You got to own it. Yeah. And know? that's okay. And you can be an There's expert. There's no shame. Yeah. And yes, yes, no shame. There's no shame. You know, we had, when Cat when, when Maria was coming to the island and we got word that Maria was coming, we're on an island that got decimated by a Cat 5 not 10 days ago. And now we've got another Cat 5 heading right for it. Right. And, uh, you know, FEMA and the National Guard and the Red Cross, or FEMA and the National Guard, they started heading to the mainland. And Red Cross said, hey, if you want to go, that's fine. If you want to stay, uh, just understand that's your decision. Yeah. And we understood, we understood what they were saying. And we had volunteers who would try to say, Hey, they're making me go or whatever. And, and I knew some of them really wanted to go because they were scared and they had a reason to be. And I told them, I said, listen, whatever the reason is that you're leaving, it's okay. Yeah. You know, because if you don't want to be here, if you're, if, if it's going to bother you that much, I need you to leave while you can, because that's one less person I have to be concerned with. Cause we have to write a safety plan. 
You know, we had some rental cars. And I said, if it hits the fan and the roof comes off this building, we're getting in those cars and we got to get, we got to get down the mountain in the middle of the storm. There's nowhere else to go. Yeah. There were no buildings to hide in. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. But, you know, my, my buddy said, Hey, what are you going to do? And I said, I didn't, I didn't come all the way down here to leave at the first sign of trouble. Like I, we need to help these people and I'm going to do that. And he said, that's exactly why I came here. So let's go. And, and the volunteers that thought the same way, we made a task force. We made some SOPs. We said, you know, line the cars up a certain way. Let's make go bags. Take your bag, break it down. Take only what you need for one night. Throw it in a backpack, line it up. And you're, you're so-and-so's driver. You're with so-and-so. And we made little strike teams. Mm. And off we went, you know. And, and that was, we were ready. That's and me cool. and my buddy Danny, we stayed up all night while that storm hammered that building, you know. And and, and we were scared. And it, it, we're two guys who are crawling around in burning buildings. And we're like, man, this is this is out of control, you know? Yeah. So I, I, I hate the sound of tornadoes and mm-hmm. hurricanes aren't as bad for me, but I hate the sound. Of tra- it sounds like a freight train coming for me. Yeah. And, yeah. um, I always say that on the show, like I can do, I can do with any disaster, but I hate tornadoes. I hate them. Tornadoes scared, they scared the life out of me too. Yeah. yeah. And I grew up in Ohio. So like, oh, um, you know, it wasn't too bad, but you know, every once in a while the sirens go, go off. And as a kid, man, I just, I just hated it. Um, but I'm well, happy yeah, to help out. As soon as... What? Hurricanes drop tornadoes. I know. Too, but for some reason, that doesn't bother me. Like I don't know, because I can. I, I feel like it's because I'm expecting it to. Like in Hurricane Harvey, we had 150 tornadoes that spun off of of that, and so you expect the wind event, you expect the rain event. It's just I hate the sound of tornadoes. Mm-hmm. But you, we're we're really we're talking about something that. Uh, kind of on the outskirts that I like to actually get into the meat too. And this is um, a really good question. It's kind of, we didn't really talk about this beforehand, um, but like that mental health, I'm a huge fan of addressing mental health, um, mostly because in our field, a lot of guys or a lot of people don't want to like, they think they say, hey, I got to take care of myself. Um, that's embarrassing or, the, you know, but there are impacts your body, your emotions deal with that. And so from your experiences, I mean, you just shared some really intense experiences. How do you personally process a disaster? Was there like an experience that you had where you're like, okay, like I, I need to either drink some water or I need to take a step back or, you know, when, um, when that guy hugged you in, uh, in Oklahoma, were those experiences that, you, that caused you to pause and make you think like, okay, I need to take care of myself too? Not consciously. And then not at that point, because at that point in my career, uh, you know, Oklahoma was probably about halfway through my disaster response career and my coordination career in, in the uh, disaster response team. Yeah. But later on, especially most recently. But what I would do is, for me, mental health with disasters kind of is a, it's a two-way gate. So in one way, I would go to these sites, these really messed up places, and I would come home and look at my house and all my stuff and my neighbor's and all the things we had. And I would just feel like I don't deserve any of it. Mm. Right? It was an extreme, it was like an extreme opposite. Yeah. And I would come home and just start throwing away clothes. Like donating them. You know what I mean? Not yeah. throwing them out, but I, know what you mean. I would put them in I a bag that. and I'd drive right to the bin and I'd give them away. Because I just, I just lived on an island for a few weeks out of a, out of a duffel bag. I come yeah. home and I've got a closet full of stuff that I never wear. 
you know? So that used to happen to me quite a bit. And the other thing is when I didn't go to a disaster for a while, I'd get kind of antsy and I'd almost get um, like my ego, like, yeah, I've got all this stuff. And I would forget. And then I go to a disaster and that would bring me back down, mm. you know? So it's almost like the dis- responding to disasters was good for my mental health in one way because it kept me on the level. Yeah. And then when I came home, over time I realized, you know what, uh, it's okay. The people, uh, Some of the people that you helped had just as much stuff as you did. And, and if it was the other way around, they would come help you and they might feel the same way going back, you know? So it's just trying to, it, it's a balance, you know? Uh, many people I know do yoga, they do breathing exercises, meditation. Uh, some people, you know, it's a rum and coke. You know, um, not necessarily the best route, but I get. <laughs> no, I would not suggest that, but yeah, you know, I, mean, I don't suggest do. it either. But you know, in our realm, that's a reality. You know, there we have uh, mental health is something like you said, it's a stigma. People have have historically, absolutely. I, I'm just, I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. Stuff it down. Yeah, stuff it down. Stuff it down. I'll be fine. Yep. And until, until you're not, you know, <laughs> until one day you're not. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and it hits you. And you have no idea, it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon, you're by yourself and you're crying. Mm. And you're mad and you're embarrassed. You have no idea what's going on. And that's your body telling you, hey, bud, it's time. You know, yeah. you need to pay attention. I like to joke around that like, um, like anytime there's like a problem, I'll just, I just like, I just like push it down more into my stomach. Like, yeah, there's just more. I can, I can fit more in there. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Never but, ending. Yeah, there was Simple a... Bag. I don't really have a problem with man, you're, when you're okay. First of all, you're talking about kind of like survivor guilt and coming home and like having all that stuff. I would, I would feel, I would feel so incredibly guilty even for asking for anything or for, I'd come home and see my stuff and be like, okay, I got, I got a purge. And it, I realized that was a tick. It was like a tick of like feeling bad for being okay. And, um, it kind of come came to a head for me, and I decided to say, "Hey, you know, I'm feeling a lot of stress here." And um, I talked to a buddy of mine, and um, he had kind of gone through the same thing. In fact, I had uh, just maybe what triggered it was the day before. I had a friend who I caught him in his car. It was, it was like a hundred degrees out Texas, and he was just bawling in his car. And so I opened the door, I gave him a you know big bear hug, and just um, just kind of held him there for a minute. And, you know, I'm a grown man. That's not something I'm, I'm not, I'm not a toucher. I'm not a hugger. Um, but it was something he needed. So like going out to disasters doesn't bother me. Like I can, I can review and look at destruction all day and understand I have a job to do, but that I still feel stressed if I, if I'm, if I go six, eight weeks, 12 weeks without sleep, you know? And so that's why I called out because I've been through it and I feel like I can handle it pretty well. And, um, yeah, it's kind of a long pitch for anybody who's out there who's been kind of going through the ringer with the pandemic or with just sustained, just like never ending problems. And you turn on the news, this 24 hour news cycle, and it seems like the whole world is imploding again. You're getting hit from every angle. Yeah. So like you yeah, can be you the gotta best. You got to shut responder. it off. You got you to gotta turn this stuff off. You know? Yes. You we're, gonna, we're, the, we're the type of personalities that work in this field that we're going to go 16, 18, 20 hours a day, day after day after day until you pass out. 
Yes. So many people I know, that's exactly what they do, or they fall asleep <laughs> at a traffic light. Yeah. On their way into work. Yes, and that's you know? it's scary. We had a... Uh, we had it's going to be there. when you If you take a day off, it's still going to be there. Like You can still come back. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, this is brutal. It's kind of a sad episode. We got to... You're like the coolest guy. We gotta, <laughs> we gotta, we gotta make this cool again. Yeah. So, uh, seriously though, like, um, really, really great call out. So let's switch gears a little bit because we're kind of going down the rabbit hole. Yeah, let's do it. All right. So New York City specific. Let's talk about New York City. Um, as as a guy who has not responded to any major incident, I I didn't do a Sandy. I did, I haven't done anything really big in New York. Luckily though, I've interviewed people like you, um, and uh, Joe Hernandez, who's actually coming back on the show. Uh, who responded to 9/11 and some of these kind of uh, these these big names, Mike? Uh, you know, I think you, you're a oh, friend of his. Oh yeah, yeah, he's a good guy and he's helped out a little bit. So, um, talk talk to me about the complexities in New York because I'm one of those guys who's looked at it as on paper, and what I see on paper, you know, quite frankly, is there is this um, there's there's the good and the bad. The good is uh that new york fires has this amazing reputation for setting the standard for the field i did work in the uk or in fact it wasn't any work i did uh, i did research in the uk uh, at the fire service college out there so shout out to them um but they're like yeah we always coordinate with uh, fdny so is that something that is uh like reputation based and because you have 218 firehouses or is it because you guys, uh, you're the complexities of New York, and you really have to keep on uh, changing your tempo? Like, can you walk us through that? Sure. It's really a combination, right? So we're a big, busy, and well-known city, straight off the bat, yeah. right? So the, the police and fire departments in those cities are going to have a certain level of higher reputation than you might find in other towns, just by name of the city alone. Mm-hmm. Right. When you get bigger incidents and we always have bigger cities have bigger problems. Right. When you get those big cities, eyes are on all the time. Mm. So for those smaller areas, they might want to say, well, how are how are those departments handling these type of problems? Because they do it way more than we do. But, you know, the truth is, in the city, we also look at other departments that experience things that we don't necessarily experience. Mm. Doesn't matter the size. And I think one of the biggest uh, things that we have is that we're a vertical city, 8 million people in a very small space, you know, and, but we're a very forward leaning, aggressive fire department. We're aggressive in training. We're aggressive interior attack for fires. You know, we're very well known for that Mm -hmm. throughout our history. And we're constantly learning and looking for ways to improve. Sometimes, unfortunately, we're improving as a result of of a line of duty death or, or a major incident. And uh, other times we're saying, hey, that was a close call. We need to make sure that never happened. You yeah. know, but we're constantly doing that. And obviously yeah. 9-11, you know, really put uh, New York City on the map. Uh, and FDNY and NYPD certainly became more of a household name worldwide at that point. Right. You know, so I think just our consistent proactivity and leaning forward and being aggressive and learning uh, and sharing our information is what helps fuel that, you know, that reputation. Um, it is a complex place, you know. When you're talking about fighting fires in, a, you know, 20, 30, 40 stories up in the air, you know, a firefighter who is in a rural town with only one or two-story homes probably can't even imagine what that's like. Yeah. I couldn't imagine what it was like until I did it, you know. Like, I had no idea how is this going to work. That doesn't make any sense. 
Well, like you know? it, it, the the standard for commercial buildings is that in uh, an emergency, all the elevators automatically go to the floor, right? So you're climbing yeah. every single one of those buildings, right? right. So I, I, I can't imagine it. I don't want to it's imagine lot, it. That's a lot of sounds like the worst. Huh? Cardio. A lot of cardio. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, and you, you know, the thing is, you're you're not even at work yet. You got to climb those those flights, bef- and then you go to work. You know, so. Um, but the complexity of the city itself, even from an emergency management point of view, right? Think about the infrastructure, how old the city is. And the infrastructure in, say, Manhattan, it's underground, right? Your steam pipes and your water pipes and your electric lines and your telecommunications and the subway system. And, you know, when you see the road dug up and you look in that hole and then you see all the various levels and sometimes you'll see support structures that were put in 100 years ago. You know, we just built on top of them. Yeah. You know, and just trying to wrap your head around, you know, like, how am I going to coordinate this? I don't even know who needs to be here, you yeah. know? Or if the and system that, exists that's, to and fix. that's part of what you figure out, you know? As a firefighter, I never worried about that, right? Because I, right. I have my fire helmet on. I'm going to go in, I'm going to do the job, and I'm going to get on the rig, and we're going to go back and wait for the next call. As an emergency management uh, professional, I'm looking at it like, okay, who's this going to impact for how long, and who do I need to get here to fix it? Right. Very different mentality. You know, when you're a first responder, you're, you're, you're leaving the scene and you're, you're probably not going to see those folks again for a bit. The emergency manager, you're, you're dealing directly with them for a while. That sounds brutal. Uh, and that sounds like every large scale disaster I've been at where, you know, it's, it's, it becomes the, the entire game of success becomes coordination. If you, if you break down coordination, if you, if you have a gap in your, one of your ESFs or your lifelines, whatever you want to call it, um, oh my gosh, all my FEMA buddies are going to harp on me for like, oh, they're different. They're the same thing. Um, <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> the, uh, but like that coordination piece, and you can also speak to that well. So I, I kind of want to ask you kind of a point blank question. Uh, but like, how do I phrase this in a way that... So police and fire, New York, you're talking about coordination over and over again. And as an emergency manager, that emergency management had on you just said several positive things about uh, New York police, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. However, when I talk to New York police or New York fire, I think the kind of standard is that there's there's not a lot of coordination. There's not a lot of communication there. Are you telling me that that's changing? Are you telling me that you kind of seen like the, the bright light moment? Or um, has there been after actions that said, okay, we got to get over this? How, how is that working out in New York? Well, what I'm saying is that you know, from my perspective, I see these agencies, PD, fire, telecommunications, Department of Transportation, EPA, you know, Department of Environmental Protection, whoever it is. Mm-hmm. And I look at all of them and I say, okay, they're all in their own little silos. And that's just the way the structure is built. Right. Right. The police department is separate from the fire department. It is. Just, yep. That's how it is. When they get to the scene, yes, they're, they're chatting. But you know what? Um, unless they each know that that incident requires them to talk to each other, they may not automatically do that because they have their own jobs to complete first. Mm. You know, so our job is to come in and make sure that we get them in there as early as possible in the same, uh, we will hold an interagency meeting. Let's talk. Let's make sure everybody knows what's going on. Like the scene might not require the NYPD to do very much for us uh, right away, but we're going to say, hey, you know, we need the security of this site. We need the traffic control, whatever the things are that, that, that they're responsible for. 
we need you to understand what you're going to, you know, what we're going to need from you. Hey, fire, uh, when you're done doing that mitigation that you're doing for that fire, that gas leak, checking for carbon monoxide, we still need to know how many folks, uh, did you evacuate anyone? You know, that kind of thing. So yeah. there is communication. Um, I think the, what happens is a lot of folks in every agency don't necessarily always know what everyone else is doing, but I don't think it's like that anywhere. You know, I don't think everybody always knows what's going on all the time. You know, mm. the average firefighter, I, I wouldn't know what NYPD is doing when I'm going to a fire. I can assume, you know, but I, I don't necessarily know that they're, they're putting traffic uh, blockades up here, here and here. But in the emergency management realm, I do because I need that to happen because we need certain things to, to go right. I mean, to protect everybody that's operating at that scene, you know, you just, so there is definitely, you know, it's definitely a communications uh, issue that we, that we, I think we handle it very well. I think, um, you know, fire chiefs and, and police chiefs and police officers, when we approach them, they're saying, Hey, well, what do we need? What do you need? Everybody's always looking to help every agency, you know, they know that they don't know everything. And they're asking, how can I help? And to me, that's critical. That's that's exactly right. And I think you just made the greatest pitch for for the role of an emergency manager uh, by talking about silos. Yeah, they do have a job to, the, to get done and they have the authority. You know, the system's set up with the different authorities. They have the authority to do this or, or do that. And... Um, Man, so I was on a, I was on a conversation just recently talking about Black Swan events, mm-hmm. and um, the the thought process was, um, you know, what happens in a Black Swan and why does a Black Swan? And my contribution to the conversation basically said, if you put all eyes on a singular event, you're going to have Black Swans, because in a tr- in a in a in a even a mass casualty event, a, a large scale event, you need to have other teams focusing on other other problems and the team that's responding that's what they need to be focusing on they need to be focusing on pulling people out of the mud they need to be Absolutely. focusing on re- restoring critical infrastructure but you need to have backups to say okay one reduce threat that threat occurrence and two if there is another if there's cascading events that they can step up and help and what you're talking about is an, uh, uh, the role of an emergency manager is to prevent black swans the role of emergency management is to clear all the crap out of the way and allow each person who's in their silo to get their job done. And so you have success in this, the field. So that's... Man, we need talk- to be able to identify the gaps yes. and figure out a way to fill them, whatever that gap is. And you'll you always know? have unlim- you'll always have limited resource. It's not like, oh, oh okay. I have, I'll have 50 teams. I, you know, I can put five teams here, five no, teams there. <laughs> no. <laughs> You, you'll never have 50 teams. Yeah, you'll, you you'll never have enough people and uh, half those people end up quitting because they, they can't do the job. And uh, maybe not half. That's, that's you got to be, you got to be flexible with that. You know, and I think Todd mentioned the phrase uh, Semper Gumby, you know, mm-hmm. you got to be always flexible. You got to be, you know, willing to accept the fact that the best laid plans are going to, are going to go to crap. Yeah. You know, it, it's going to happen. Uh, maybe not every time, but you got to be, you got to have a plan for the new plan. You know what I mean? You got to be able to, <laughs> to go outside the box. Yeah. And, you know, in, in, in my mentality, I always live outside that box. You know, I'm always expecting the unexpected, trying to figure out what else could happen. We're assuming XYZ is going to go in order. And that's great. If it doesn't, it's not that big a deal. We can shift here and here. Mm-hmm. 
But it's that secondary incident, whatever it is, another gas main goes or another, you know, or there's a subway incident nearby or whatever that thing is. We have to be able to anticipate how are we going to handle that now, mm-hmm. you know, while we're simultaneously managing this incident. You know, and I think that's where um, that's where emergency managers shine, in my exactly. opinion, is being able to really take that big picture and just put it all together and. Get your get your whiteboard up and dry erase markers, you know, and and uh, you know get your maps and start going at it, you know. Yeah. Just really uh, get as big as you can, as fast as you can, whatever that number is, you know. Mm-hmm. Get the professionals in there, bring them in, get your SMEs, figure out who it is, call them, yes. you know. Bringing all the right people that you can. So this is as uh, a quick call before I ask you another question. It's kind of a, sure. a, a tangent question, but my call out is. Uh, when, when you're at a disaster and you're arguing with HR about like how many people you need, that's the wrong. That's you're in the wrong place. Like, um, everybody should should know their role. And I, I, my thing is like, if if an ops chief came up to me or a plans chief came up to me and said, "I need X more number of staff," I should not have to go and have to prove that to you know finance admin. This is how, what we say we need to get the job done. This is what we need to get the job done. And any other way is is another way. It might be it might take the disaster longer. You might have uh, failures. You might have gaps. So this is just a call out to a lot of emergency managers to that coordination piece. Work really really well pre disaster with HR and finance to say to build up that trust. Right. If you say I need these resources, that they understand that that's a real need, not a want or a you know if, if then statement. So I'm not going rogue by asking for this. Yeah, so you're this not is a legit request. Yes, it's a it's a legit request. So the other the other the other thing I was going to bring up, and this is more that block swan stuff. Um, I have that book. It's actually next on my list to read. Oh, really? Good, good for it. It's so, one, yeah. my this is the the question I've been grappling with, um, especially because of 2020 and because of the news and everything. As emergency managers, we deal with what if as a as a standard operating procedure, we think of what if. What is the difference between a what if and a conspiracy? Wow, that is that is a that's a good question. The reason because you know, we're always thinking we're thinking plane into a train into a you know into a bus, and people think, wow, you're you're a real doomsday type of person, you <laughs> yeah. know. Yeah, and we get that a lot. Yes, right. Um, but you know, conspiracies, conspiracy, and there's you know there's a ton of them going on today. We all know that, you know. Uh, but we've all we've grown up with conspiracies because they it's not they're not brand new, right? The subject matter is just different. Yeah. So I think uh, for me personally, I hear something and I break it down based on my knowledge of the environment that is proposed. This thing is going to happen. Uh, what is the what agencies are taking it seriously? What are they doing about it? Right. And, and, I, and I just, I break each piece down and I try to figure out, okay, how much of this is legit and how much of this is, is really just somebody stirring a pot or really, you know, maybe somebody's just completely off their rocker and just making this up because, you know, they're crazy. Yeah. You know, they've convinced and themselves. Yeah. And, and it's hard. It's hard to get, it's hard to wrap your head around that. But like, you know, if I'm if I find a news story, like I, I try to stay away from the news. Honestly, like if something legit happens in the city, I'm going to get a phone call. 
and I'm going to have to respond to it and I'm going to deal with it that way. I try to be heads up. I, I, it's very, you know, you know, it's a difficult balance to not get into the weeds and the, and then the next thing you're reading the comment section, you know, and, and people are slinging digital missiles at each other and it's just, it's no good can come from that, you know, but for the conspiracy theories, I do what I do with the news. I look at multiple sources. I, I find the common parts that everybody's got. And then I start to break down the, okay, where are we swaying off topic? All right. You're, you're talking about X, but now we've got two different opinions on it. Okay. Well, that's, that, that goes into questionable columns for me, you know, and I don't buy into anything straight away uh, unless it's, you know, unless it comes from my bosses, like this is what happens. This is a, a legit threat, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't, I don't trust anything like Instagram and, you know, you're watching people's stories and they're posting all manner of craziness. And I'm just like, I have no time for this. Yeah. You know, however, if you are going to be on Instagram, you should follow the disaster tough podcast. <laughs> oh, 100%. Yeah. As I currently do. That's awesome. Good man. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, th- what you're saying right now is what I've been thinking. I think my, my answer is, and I want to think about this more. And quite frankly, if there's uh, people listening to this right now, I'd love to, to hear their input and, uh, maybe I'll ask um, emergency manager this. Um, I probably should have led with this. We can cut out everything else before this because this is a big deal. M- my thing is intelligence, data, trusted data sources. I play the what if game as an emergency manager. I don't get into conspiracies. And I think the difference is uh, I'm able to say, okay, here's historical data. This is what actually happened. Not what people said was going to happen. Not these hyped up, you know, crazy scenarios, but okay, what is actually happening? And I'm comparing that to historical data. Um, one thing that was really big for me when I was on the national team was I compiled and I still have it. I'm really grateful. I, I took the time to do this. I compiled every single credible source that I had. And I have about a link of about, or I have 26 links to different federal agencies, um, news store news sources, which are always for profit, so you, you know that's that gray area. But comparing that to federal agencies and the the data that's coming out, um, there's some real world, very recent experiences I've had where people are telling me they're conspiracies, and then I look at the FBI reports that are coming out, and I'm like, that is not matching what you're saying. And yeah. so there's there's people who I agree they're crazy and they they convince themselves of something and it becomes reality. And so they spit it out as if reality. There's also people who are trying to put out misinformation and others who are hoping it's real because they like drama and to be able to, uh, to weed out all, all that and to actually find the credible sources. And I would say that the best way to do that is first to look at agencies because government agencies really don't like saying something that's wrong. Um, and they like to coordinate with every, all the other agencies in their jurisdiction, or at least in their in their sphere of influence, to make sure everybody's saying the same message. So they're going to do a, a lot to not look bad, right? And so they'll validate that information. So I think that's a great call out of like you found your trusted sources. Hey, you're you're in the field right now, so you can you can trust your bosses. You get a call, something is happening. You're looking at that reality, but you're able to look at historical data and say what could happen based off of what's happened before. Um, and and so, how have we responded to it? Yeah. How have we you responded? Know, because you don't it? need to reinvent the wheel all the time. You know, sometimes the, the method that was used before is just fine and it can be easily adapted to the new environment. If it can't, 
they can't. That's just how it is, mm-hmm. you know. But why work that much harder? You know, if you know what's happened before, go take a quick look. You know, yes. how do, what did we do last time? You know, what did we learn from that? What did the after action look like? Yeah. Okay, let's build off of that. After actions yeah. are not about people sitting down around a table complaining for an hour about all the things that went wrong. After actions are identifying what went right and what were the gaps and more importantly, how to overcome those gaps. Uh, and that's very different than uh, we've always done it like this. So that's what the way we're going to do it. That's very, too, I mean, it sounds a dangerous like attitude, you know, but they, but they are different using after actions to say, okay, what went right? Let's do that. And what went wrong? Let's make sure we don't do that again. Um, I think yeah, that's well, some of the best after actions I've been to talked only about what went wrong. Yes. Oh, but they're not complaining, right? They, no, no, it's, it's lesson. It's a teaching moment. It's like, here's, we already know what went right. We, mm-hmm. we were there. Let's talk about the things that didn't go right. Let's try to figure out why mm-hmm. and see what we can do to prevent it. You know, that for me is most impactful because I'm not afraid to be told I messed up. You know, yeah, we're not perfect. We're, 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 Sometimes you got to, you know, just reach out of thin air to find solutions to things. And it takes creativity. And that's where, you know, diversity of thought, whether you're a first responder turned EM or EM with no first response or you've been response, but not in an emergency capacity, whatever your, you know, whatever your history is, everybody's input is what's going to help figure that out. Yeah. You know, and, uh, and that's, and that's right. And, you know, that circling back to your original question about, you know, how can these newer emergency managers and what are the things that they can do to help in, increase their chances of, of getting better opportunities and things is understanding these concepts that it's not about you. These things, there are no stupid questions, you know, like, yes, it may have been asked before. That's okay. Because if you have good leadership around you, they're going to understand and identify that and they're going to bring you up to speed and they're going to embrace you and, 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 and bring you along for that ride because they were there once too, you know? Yeah. And, um, and that's, and that's key. Um, identifying that, Hey, I've never been to an after action. I wonder if I can get in there. I don't know what it is. Let me get in there and listen. My and first, and listen. my first emergency management job, I got in there and I was asked to write an occupant emergency plan, emergency operations plan, uh, create a, a hazard uh, hazard vulnerability assessment and a hazard mitigation plan, wow. which makes sense for a county, but they're called Thyras if Thyra's you're for, right. uh, for an agency. They're a hazard identification risk assessment, but it was called a hazard mitigation plan to me. So uh, first of all, I actually think they're the same thing if you actually are doing it right. But beyond that is actually a Thyra, but it was told to me in HMP. So I looked up all these documents. I had just got out of college and I was like, I have no idea how to do any of these. And so I took a lot of time to talk with other emergency managers and my boss of like, I was just honest. I was like, I've never written one. And so like he just started sending me example after example of what he wanted to use. And in the course of it, I I, I think I realized that he, you know, he had all these grant plans too, but you know, your experiences lead you down different paths. And so it's like, okay, we're actually trying to create a thyroid here. And that, that created, ended up creating a, a continuity operations plan. But I thought I understood emergency management really well because I had done volunteer work. I had gone to college. And when it really came down to it, I didn't, I'd never written a plan to that point. So yeah, getting in the room and asking questions, I was really grateful that to have good leadership at that job who I felt like I could go up to. 
not everybody has that opportunity. You know, workplaces are complex. And so if you're listening to this podcast right now and you're kind of like that, there's a topic that you want us to discuss. It's actually a really good call out because today actually on the, um, on the Instagram page, I asked people, I said, if there's a a certain topic you want us to cover, we can cover that. So, um, maybe we can have you come back on the show and we can, um, talk about some of those comments. Um, yeah, you know, I had to write a thyra for, for my uh, bachelor's degree uh, in emergency management. I'd never done one. I did it on my town. Yeah. I learned a lot about my town. Isn't you know? that fun? It's actually really fun to do. It, wasn't, it was actually, it was a really good experience. I love doing those plans. I know it sounds kind of funny. Like people don't like, uh, t- but when you actually know your hazards and you know what the gaps are and you're able to, I don't know, talk about that conspiracy, right? You're starting to put in all the pins on the map and you're starting to see how it comes together. I actually have a lot of fun doing that. I do that all the time for Doberman. And uh, well, I think it's just important for you to get comfortable being uncomfortable. You know, like, yes. go. I don't intend on working in planning, but I want to know how they operate and what they do so I can better give them what they need to help me and I can help them. Yeah. Like, if I don't ever spend any time with those folks, I'm never truly going to be able to say I understand what they do. And that's coordination, you know, through and through. You know? And I, and I, I think it should be that way for anybody, old or new in emergency management or in any career. Well, that you know, kind of brings us... people to try new things. That brings us you know? into our last question. We kind of went full circle here. Um, we're talking about lessons learned. We're talking about your own career experiences and coordination. And this whole episode has all been... There's that, you know, there's that moment where we talked about mental health, and that's really important. But most of it's really been about coordination and getting out in the field and getting experience and learning how all these different pieces work. So uh, that full circle moment, if you are going to give advice to emergency managers who are just getting in the field, or you're going to talk to a future emergency manager in 10 years, what is one thing you'd want to change about our field? I would say learn how to get out of your own way. Hmm. You know, because I think Many times in our field, incidents happen and, and we're just like, go, 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 go. And we lean forward so much that before we know what's going on, we're so far ahead that we're missing things and we're starting to trip a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like if you're running and you're leaning too far forward, it's not going to be long until you fall and the whole house comes down. Right? It's just take that breath. Yes, it's intense. There's a lot going on, but you've got to be able to just step back okay, that's not my role. Where do I fit in? Okay, here's what we have to do and how can we support this operation best? Get out of your own way. You know what I mean? Um, it's not about you. That's and, and those go hand in hand. You know, this is there's no ego here. We got to get out of your own head. You know, it's all about helping others and doing it as efficiently and quickly as we can. But it's not it's not a sprint. You know, it's really not. Us, so I, I think that would be an important thing. I'd like to see um, more more of our colleagues kind of just really embrace because that it happens so often all around the country at these major disasters. You know, we're constantly looking back, going, "Oh, we missed that. Well, how did we miss that? Yeah, how did you miss that? <laughs> We've been training and exercising on that thing for decades." <laughs> my My right? biggest gripe is the <laughs> communication on every single after action. Communication on every single after action to this point means nothing to me. What was the problem? Was it when you say comms, are you talking about 
you had the bad radio? Are you saying that you couldn't... The technology? Are you saying that you had bad communication with your staff? Are you saying poor coordination? But every single disaster and every single full-scale exercise, it's all about comms. Coordinating with all the multi-agency response, getting all the right players in there, checking out all the equipment. We do comms checks all the time. So, oh my gosh, should I... That'll be like big soapbox moment. I could talk for it, hours. It, you on know that. what it is? It's, it's network. It's, it's networking. You know what I mean? Yes. You're, you talk to people. Talk it, to people. Get their phone number. You should, like we always say in, in the in the field, like you shouldn't be meeting at the first for the first time in the field, right? Yes. Sometimes that's unavoidable. That's just reality. You shouldn't Especially pass out your business card in a disaster, right? Yeah. But if you have to, that's fine. But you know what? Follow up. Build a relationship with that person because you're probably going to see them again. Yeah. You know. I love so. him. It's, that was a great way to end this episode. Talk about we talked about coordination the entire time and just getting out of your own way. It is really all about helping people. Doug, I mean, clearly you're an expert. This is why I was really excited to have you on here. You talked about so many different experiences, even from like, you know, from the gate. You're just walking us through some of those major experiences throughout your career where you where you worked with survivors directly or you get interacted with the survivors directly. And how that impacted you now as an emergency manager and that interagency coordination. I'm grateful that you're in New York City and you're able to provide that experience. I'm gl- glad that you're able to come on to our show. Again, thank you so much for coming on here. No problem. Thank you so much for inviting me. I really had a, I really enjoyed being here. Absolutely. So for all those um, who have been paying attention to this episode... Uh, and have comments, questions, want to do follow-up with Doug, you can do it one of a couple ways. First way is go onto that Instagram page. I keep on preaching that. We're trying to build that up. So go to Instagram, Disaster Tough Podcast, uh, where you can add a comment to... We're going to add some clips for, for Doug on there. So you can add some comments on there. You can also send us an email at info at DobermanEMG.com. Again, that's info at DobermanEMG.com. And one more pitch for Doberman. I always do a pitch for Doberman because we love helping people out. We're all, we're all about analytics, that planning, mitigation, response. So if you, need, uh, if you have identified a gap and you need help, you can email us at info at DobermanEMG.com. Again, that's info at DobermanEMG.com. 